Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to the Hyperion Hub, your meeting place for all things Disney. Now your hosts. Hello and welcome to the Hyperion Hub, your meeting place for all things Disney. I'm John Alois and joined by Sean Degenhart. Hello. <laughs> He's watching. And John Redling Schaefer. You remember my name or not? <laughs> Hi, guys. Before we get started, I want to let you know we are on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter. You can find us at Hub Hyperion. You can also email us at podcast at thehyperionhub.com. You can also take your phone, hit record on your voice memo, and send us a very pleasant message, and we will play it on the show. What about unpleasant messages? I'll think about okay. it. Okay. <laughs> Other than that, if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us. It truly does help people find the show. If you like us and you know where we are on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter, go ahead and share our show as well. All right, let's get things started. We like to start it off with our Disney views, and I throw it over to John. Gentlemen, imagine you've spent your whole college career developing a game plan for what you're going to do after school. You get a letter from the company in your industry. You get to your first day of work, and the world has changed. I have to tell you, if I got a letter from Mr. Waternoose saying I was going to be the main scarer, I would have been thrilled. And that's exactly what Tyler Tuskman found out. He graduates from Monsters University and gets to Monsters, Inc. the day we discover the big conspiracy, right? And so, friends, I have to tell you, if you haven't seen Monsters at Work on Disney+, tune in. It has been a joy to watch so far, and I have to say, having all those familiar voices come back but follow someone else during their journey through the company, I think it's going to be a great series. It's already a great start. He's he's down in the mechanics room, and he's getting his feet wet with the whole process, and I won't even say the idea of changing we scare because we care to something else, but you have to tune in to see what the new motto is of the company. I don't know if you guys had a chance to see it, but man, has it been fun so far. My girls have watched it. We have not they've been they were watching it when I got home from work today, so have not yet had a chance to dig in. I'm excited. Uh, you know, the property is great. I, I don't know if they've topped that first movie yet. Um, every time Boo says goodbye to Kitty at the end, <laughs> forget about it. But um, I'm excited that they're going to keep the story going. And, you know, there's a lot of places that they can go with it. And uh, it looks great. I haven't seen it yet. All right. Well, tune in because I think you're going to really enjoy it. Awesome. Thanks, John. We have a great guest with us this week. He was an Imagineer at Disney from the mid-1970s into the 1980s, working on such projects as part of the opening team of Epcot Center in 1982 and the redesign of Disneyland's Fantasyland in 1983. Jim Sarno is with us. Thanks so much for joining us here at the Hyperion Hub, Jim. Glad to be here. Now, you grew up in Southern California, Am right. I am I to assume that's where your love for theme parks or design began? Yeah, I'd have to say five years old was my first visit. And uh, when I got there, I, I just started school. My nickname was Dumbo because my ears stuck out. 
So when I got to Disneyland and I saw Dumbo and Mickey and Minnie and they all had big ears and everybody loved them. I said, well, I know where I need to go. (laughs) So my interest was at that age. Tell us how you became interested in theme park design then from that point forward. Yes. You were an artist as a child, correct? As a kid, I was a little homebound kid that kept myself entertained with art. And uh, when I got back from Disneyland, I got a shoebox, started filming it with all kinds of artsy stuff. My mom said, Jimmy, what are you up to? I said, I want to build my own Disneyland. So that's where it began. And then art was what I did my whole life. Uh, I actually went to Cal State Northridge and was studying to do toy design Hmm. until I found out that was in New York. I said, well, I don't want to live in New York. And so the studios were around me because I was in the San Fernando Valley. The studios were everywhere. So um, I used to drive by Disney Studios and thought, wow, what goes on behind those gates? And I wanted to get in there. So my first job was at Sid and Marty Croft. Have you heard of them? Yeah, absolutely. HR puffing stuff, right? Exactly. So um, that's where I began. And I met Ken Forsey. He worked at Disney. And he was back in the model shop in the old days. Okay. And he was my boss at Sid and Marty Croft. So when he hired me, he was working on this talking teddy bear. And that idea came from Country Bear Jamboree. And he said, Jim, if I ever get this going, you're coming with me. So that was my mentor at the very start in the studios. In fact, he even got me an interview at Disney which didn't pan out. I went there and it was Bob Sewell who was in charge of the model shop. And he said, Jim, you're, you're what we need. And we'd love to hire you. We're waiting to sign the contract with Tokyo for Tokyo Disney. Mm. And uh, that wasn't happening. It was stretched out for years. And I ended up getting laid off with Sid and Marty Croft and moved to Hawaii. Wow. I went to Bob. I went to Bob. I said, here's my number. If anything happens, I'll come right back. But it didn't happen. So how did you get that call from Disney or did you did you apply again? I never got the call from Bob Sewell, who was going to hire me. So I came back from Hawaii and I went to work for for uh, Hanna-Barbera. Hmm. So the Flintstones and Scooby-Doo and all the characters. And at the time, they were trying to get into amusement park design. So they had the I guess it was a son-in-law of Knott's was working at Sid Marty Croft and he wanted us to design um, a haunted house. Hmm. So that was my first introduction into theme park design. We tried doing, you know, competing with Disney, but it wasn't going to happen. So when I went to Hanna-Barbera, I was learning costume design because they had their characters at Marineland. And so I was doing that uh, while I was there, uh, a woman, May Kanega, that I was working with, got a deal with the Muppets. And because we knew how to do the costumes, the Muppets wanted the Sesame Street Live costume characters to be on stage. So we went on to design those for them. So having that background in costume design with walk-around characters, I saw an ad in the newspaper for MAPO, M-A-P-O, which was the funds from Mary Poppins Mm -hmm. 
that built Mapo to design all the uh, the animatronic body parts, right. you know, that all the shells that the computers went into. So I saw that ad and I said, Mapo, I said, I think that's Disney. And I didn't get in before, but I'm getting in this way. <laughs> so in that interview, my boss said, looking at your work, don't you belong in the model department, model shop? I said, oh, no, no, I, I really love fiberglass. I want to work <laughs> doing body parts. And of course I didn't, but I didn't see an ad for uh, come and work in the model shop, you know. So I got in and fiberglass. Have you guys ever worked with fiberglass? I haven't. Not, not recently, no. Not recently. <laughs> Nightmare. You know, it's surfboards, it's boats, mm. that kind of thing. So I'm doing the body parts. Every day my boss comes up, Jim, how do you like the job? Oh, I love it. I'm just having a great time while you while you got glass in your arms, you know. <laughs> so on a lunch break, I snuck over to the model shop. It was right there on the same lot. And I met Maggie Elliott, who now had replaced Bob Sewell, and she was the lead of the model shop. And she said, Jim, I, I like what you're doing, and we'd like to hire you. And I thought, wow, this is it. And she said, where are you now? I said, I'm over at Mapo. She said, I'm sorry, we can't hire you. Why not? She said, you're union, then we just can't do it. Hmm. So here was the big chance. And I said, you know, if my boss asked me, his name was Rick Goulding. I said, if he asked me one more time how I like this, I'm going to be honest. <laughs> I told him, I love that I have a job at Disney. I'm not thrilled with fiberglass. And Maggie would like to hire me, but she told me she couldn't. He said, come to my office. I went up to his office. It was a Friday afternoon. He made some calls. He said, Jim, don't tell anybody, but on Monday, you report to the model shop. Wow. So I went back, and I always think I was kind of like Fred Flintstone. Remember how he clocks in with that rock, you know, <laughs> in his timesheet? That's kind of how it was at Mapo for me. And I couldn't tell any of my friends. I'd only been there a few weeks. But on Monday, I reported to the model shop and couldn't tell anybody how or what happened. And I don't know how he did it, but he did it. Wow, that's fascinating. So... Part of the studio, was Mapo under the studio or was that like a separate company? It was separate from the Burbank Studios okay. on Buena Vista. So we were in Glendale at WED. Mm. This was 1401 Flower. Mm -hmm. So uh, Mapo was there. Um, we had a, quite a few buildings. They just kind of took over that area of Glendale. And the model shop was in 1401, but we shared the same cafeteria and they allowed us to wander around. I mean, this was back when things weren't as uptight as they are now. Mm -hmm. So uh, luckily, something happened there and uh, the magic started. So you're working in the model shop in the mid-1970s and they're getting ready to open up uh, another theme park, their third theme park with Epcot. And they're getting ready to right. work on all these projects. But what a what an era at that point, because you're probably working with some of the original, well, a lot of the original Imagineers as a whole yeah. new generation is coming in as well, right? Exactly. So tell yes. us about some of the folks you got to work with. Well, that first day they brought me in and of course the model of Epcot is there in the big room and then there's cubicles all around and they set me in the second booth right next to Harriet Burns. 
Legend. And I didn't even know who Harriet Burns was, even when I met her. So I was not, you know, a crazy Disney fan that knew everything going on. I was an artist who liked to build miniatures. <laughs> so there I was introduced to Harriet. And if you did any of you meet her ever? No, never got to meet her. I no. know what she's accomplished. I, I wrote down a couple of things here. Matterhorn, Tiki Room, all the early designs with Disneyland, Pirates, Mr. Lincoln. Yeah. I mean, on and on and on and on. Everything. And little did I know that where I was working, where they set me, was where Fred Jerger had worked. You know Fred's Imagineer? Mm -hmm. uh, Imagineer, very quiet. And in the beginning, it was Harriet and Fred, a group of five guys with Harriet, and they were building Disneyland on the Disney lot. They were part of the original crew. Mm -hmm. So Fred had retired. I ended up in his space. Harriet and I became the best of friends. I, anybody who met Harriet became her dear friend. But we had a special connection, and I think she was so close to Fred that when I showed up, she kind of allowed me to become her new friend. And so <laughs> the stories I have with Harriet are amazing. And the projects. And then Maggie Elliott, my boss, says, uh, Jim, I've got a meeting set up for you. First day, she takes me upstairs. She says, you're going to meet with Roly Crump and Walt Paragoy. Now, Walt, now Walt was an, an animator right yes in the 50s yeah. and 60s and roly we've had roly on the show so well, yeah, just and a classic gentleman roly was in charge of the pavilion the land pavilion that we that mm -hmm. walt was working on and so walt was the lead designer roly was you know feeding him what he needed and then uh, walt have you heard much about walt paraguay i just know that he worked on a lot of those 50s and 60s shorts the classic and, yeah yeah mm -hmm. So he was a true artist. I mean, he was not like any other animator. He was not like any other artist. And people were challenged when they were working with Walt. Well, I think Maggie thought, and actually after the meeting, which was wonderful, and the two guys just took me in, I said, Maggie, why would you ever on my first day put me in a meeting with those two? <laughs> she said, well, you said you could do it. I want to see how you do <laughs> wow! <laughs> it was <laughs> what they call a trial by fire you know mm -hmm. but walt and i hit it off uh we became family i called him my art dad he was just such a good friend and so harriet and walt who were twice my age i was in my late 20s they were in their 50s and they became my best friends there and my mentors I can't imagine there's what you'd call a typical day as you start there. But, I mean, in your best way possible, okay, Monday morning, what's on your agenda? Uh, you usually had something that you were assigned. Now, of course, for me, it was, you know, all new. But let's say the second day, uh, Walt said, we want you to sculpt a fountain for the land pavilion. Mm. Wow. So, in the food court. So, my day was... Okay, I'm terrified. I, I'm in with these big shots. And I'm little Jimmy Sarno going, how did I end up here? <laughs> so I start with the sketch. And then I do all the eight panels. And I get the dimensions. And Walt says, okay, uh, we use this green foam, which was a nightmare to all of us. It was um, 
wasn't quite fiberglass, but it was bad. <laughs> but the idea was to build a maquette, a miniature. So I laid it all out. And, and most things that happened there, at least for me, you went in, you had some idea of what you were doing, but you really were a bit lost. And you got what you could from the lead designer. Uh, Harriet was right there, always giving me pointers. And you begin. But and you figure it out. <laughs> right. It, it sounds like that there's at least some freedom there to work on your art, your craft. And I, that's that's amazing that, you know, you always wonder, is it a micromanaging situation or is it really just the freedom to, to do what you want? And it sounds like the latter. It, it was amazing total freedom. Uh, and then you have all these superstars that I didn't know who they were, but I learned as I went. I even started making a list of who these people were because, you know, when you think of who they are and now all we know about them, mm -hmm. it was amazing that they were my mentors to teach me how to become an Imagineer. So a day was, okay, uh, you're on your own and you better show them you know what you're up to. <laughs> Uh, so it was this foam, and I had to carve it in the designs that Walt had given me that I was coming up with my own version of. And once that was done, I coated it with a two-part epoxy to give it a hard shell. And it was all white. And then we put it in a black room with duvetine curtains, black velvety curtains. So it was completely black, and then we gel lit it with colors, colored gels in front of lights. So Walt and I worked closely on this. Do you know Blaine Gibson? Yeah, the, yeah. the famous sculptor. The head of the sculpture department. Mm -hmm. So he heard that I was working on this fountain. And uh, once the model was done, I was then to do the full size out of oil-based clay, which was his department. So there was a lot of freedom. But Blaine went to Maggie and said, why is Jim working in the model shop on a clay sculpture? And she tried to explain it. And then I was working closely with Walton Rowley. He said, well, look, I don't mind if Jim stays there, but he could also come and work in the sculpture department, which, you know, that was going to blow me away if that was happening. Now, Blaine was mild mannered. He was the nicest guy. But, you know, he, I think things were starting to build up that this was becoming a huge corporation. And you had to hold on to your department and make sure you were being smart about what was being done where. So he agreed with Maggie to let me stay in the model shop right there next to Harriet. He said, but how about if I oversee Jim? So now I've got Rolly helping me, Walt Paragoy, Harriet Burns next door, and then Blaine Gibson. <laughs> yeah, no pressure, so no Blaine, pressure at all. Yeah, right. <laughs> no, and you know what? I didn't I didn't feel that pressure. I I knew it was a big deal. But at the same time, I was too naive to get it. Well, you had an assignment. How often, I, you know, so you probably just put your head down and worked. How often did I these said, guys, uh, did these people talk about Walt Disney, though? I mean, that didn't intimidate you? No. Okay. I, <laughs> Good for you. Let me tell you, noted, yeah. Harriet, was, Harriet was very close to Walt Disney uh, in the shop as well as friends. And she would talk about him all the time. And Walt said this and Walt did this. And Walt Paragoy also knew him, but was not a close friend. But Walt was really esteemed, Walt Paragoy, by Walt Disney because he was so unique. So Walt Disney had an interest in Walt Paragoy 
that was different than anyone else he worked with. So Walt Paragoy was very honest about everything. So I got Walt Paragoy's view and Harriet Burns and everything in between. So mid-70s, Walt's been gone for, you know, maybe under 10 years. How much of his original vision of Epcot was still in play? You know, and with the studio changing, how much were you guys under pressure to try to fulfill Walt's vision but still move ahead? Okay, so I was actually there in the late 70s, and it was full steam ahead. The model was fairly laid out. Um, And we all knew what the idea was, the experimental prototype community of tomorrow. Um, There was such pressure to get this built by the deadline. I mean, there was such a push for us to make this thing happen. And the reason all the old timers were still there and some came back was this was Walt's last dream. So they wanted to be part of it. Um, So there was tremendous freedom. We all understood what the goal was, but that's where you felt the pressure. And it wasn't necessarily about design as much as we have to get this thing done and opened. So the head designers like Walt or um, Colin Campbell or Claude Coates, they were in charge of the concepts. They do them two-dimensionally, and then they bring them to us in the model shop and say, now, you're the dimensional people. Bring this to life. The best story I have is running into Colin Campbell in the hallway. I don't think we had a meeting, but somehow he was trying to get me. We ran into each other. He said, Jim, and he grabs a napkin from the cafeteria, and he sketches out this little purple robot. He said, can you design this? And I thought, well, you don't say no. I said, sure. I can. <laughs> right. And and this was after the fountain. So I, you know, I was starting to have a little confidence in who I was and what I could do. And um, I took that little napkin, went home from work, stopped at the hardware store, bought plumbing pipes, a doorknobs, anything I could find that gave me an idea of what this idea he wanted. I came back the next day with a bandsaw and glue and cutting and Bondo for a car. And I cut it all up in a day or two and created Smart One. Wow. That's amazing. So that, that blows me away to this day. Wow. So you just, you, you, you were given a couple of days to get this thing done. And that's how Imagineering worked or works. You're just given an assignment and you go with it. You're, you're given an assignment. And like I say, we were passing in the hallway and uh, I have a feeling that he told Maggie because everything went through Maggie. Uh, What happened was the head designers would bring projects to her and she'd dole them out to who she thought who was available. But many times the head designers would say, I want Jim to work on this. Uh, especially with Walt Paragoy, because we got along so well, everything he got, I want Jim on this with me. So I was so fortunate to have shown them, I guess, in the first few projects that I could do what their concept was in their head with little direction. And that was the secret. They weren't going to be there helping you. I mean, if they were passing by or you had a question, but you were really on your own. And so the ability to interpret what they were telling you with a few little sketches 
was the secret to building Epcot. So Walt Disney uh, had a reputation of never really complimenting, right? So you didn't get a lot of pats on the back. You just kind of got a, that'll work, that'll do. That'll be, exactly. good, good job for doing your job, you know, that type of thing. Did that carry on? into the generation of Imagineers that you worked with? Did you get a lot of recognition or was it just good job on your next project? It depended who it was. Now you're talking about the original concept and where it went. Well, there was a, a, a bit of a free for all within these creative geniuses. Uh, so there was an awful lot of freedom and I work closely with Marty Scalar mm. and John Hench so when that fountain was being designed, uh, they were in that duvetine room with me deciding if they liked this. Walt Paragoy happened to be out that day. Now, he was the head designer, and I was just interpreting his ideas. So they didn't like the top of the fountain. And they said, Jim, that doesn't, doesn't fit the way we think it should. Can you redesign it? And I'm thinking, well... I guess I can. <laughs> so again, there was, yeah, sure. I can. Never uh, say we, no. need it, we need it tomorrow. Right. <laughs> okay. And they really wanted it tomorrow. So I took this horrible green foam home with me. I went in the bathtub with the shower, pulled the curtain and I'm sculpting at night, wow. the top of the new, the new top for the fountain. So I went in, coated it, got it all ready. They came back for another review and they said, Oh, that's exactly what we were thinking. And that's how things occurred. That's amazing. The wow. fact that you guys are all on the same page without knowing yeah. the direction you're really supposed to go in. <laughs> and I've got to say, John Hench was quiet, unassuming. He was kind of like Disney where it would be, oh, that'll work. Mm -hmm. And Marty Scalar was much more patchy on the back. Good job, Jim. Thanks a lot. And then we get to Walt and Roly and Harriet, and it was a love fest, you know. Uh, they they didn't hesitate to tell you you were doing a great job, especially Walt Paragoy. He painted a painting for me of Peter and the Wolf, and it was a huge 36 by 24 uh, oil painting. And he said, Jim, I'm giving you this because I want to warn you. He said, you got talent, and they know it, and don't let him take advantage of you. And this was a gift he gave me. So, I mean, you know, you got that kind of wonderful support. And then you got a lot of the, that'll do, that'll work. Yep. So and let's Walt, get it going because we have to get it ready. <laughs> did Walt Paragroy, when he came back and see that the top of his fountain had been redesigned, what did he say? That's a great question. So good of you to mention that. <laughs> He, he was not happy. <laughs> <laughs> he mentioned at one point, because I kept in touch with him his whole life till the end. And he said that I had quit my job because I was so offended <laughs> that they accepted my top and not his. Oh, wow. And it's quoted somewhere. And, you know, I let Walt think whatever he wanted to. Later, I was able to correct the story and i had quit at one point but it had nothing to do with the fountain and i was kind of secretly thrilled that i got to design this because he wasn't there and i think because he loved me he just let it go and made up a story that sounded better yeah 
And what I did was I just said, I think it looks, it needs to look more like leaves. The whole idea was four <laughs> basic food groups. And I thought, well, the other was abstract, but maybe they're looking for something a little more realistic. So that's what I did. Uh, sometimes there are hidden Mickeys in attractions. Yes. And at least one time in history, there might be a hidden gym. So if you wouldn't mind, please share that story. A hidden so, Sarno, yes. <laughs> hidden Sarno. Is it, are there are there books about those, like the hidden Mickeys? Then I'd like to know how many nice. there are. Yeah. Maybe the like I just said. <laughs> uh, nobody will ever know I did this. They won't know I sculpted it, and there were many people involved. But you know, ultimately, I was there from the beginning to the end. So I carved Sarno, <laughs> camouflaged in the fish panel, <laughs> and. Uh, I wasn't going to go to Florida to install this. And Maggie was sending other people. I said, Maggie, I have been on this from the day you put me in that lion's cage. <laughs> I said, I have to go. She said, well, we don't have a commercial flight for you to get there. And I had to leave the next day. I said, well, I'm going. How am I going to get there? She said, yes, you should be there. She goes, tomorrow you report to the Burbank airport. You're on the mouse. Nice. Wow. I, had, I didn't know what that was, but I had an idea. Sure enough, Walt Disney's private jet. <laughs> and there I go, and I'm off to stay at Fort Wilderness and canoe over to Epcot <laughs> to make sure that that Sarno panel is right in the smack center. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, that's a priority. I mean, that's the most important thing to do, right? Yeah. I said, well, this is all very simple, but it can go any direction. And when you're up on top looking down at the food court, I want Sarno six feet across the panel. <laughs> so Walt got a kick out of that story. Was that your first trip to Walt Disney World, too? And you're seeing yours? Yeah. Yeah, I believe it was. You're seeing your and, sculpture uh, in a new theme park. In Walt Disney World. You know, I, I know at the time, a lot of these things were surprising and shocking, but not nearly as they have been now. When I, all these interviews and podcasts, it started to sink in how important all this was. So important. Next week, part two of our interview with Jim Sarno, and he'll share stories about Harriet Burns and other legendary Imagineers. If you're following us on social media, please like, subscribe, and share as well. You can email us at podcast at thehyperionhub.com. Have a great week, everybody. We're glad you could join us. We'd love to hear from you. You can email or send us a recorded audio message at podcast at thehyperionhub.com. Find us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The Hyperion Hub is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or its subsidiaries. We'll meet you next time at the Hyperion Hub.